Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellen podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Last week's story had a very happy ending in the suburbs where two neighbors connected unexpectedly and formed this beautiful relationship. But this story is different. It doesn't have as happy of an ending. It's a little bit messy, which is where a lot of us live in our neighbor relationships. We don't always have that happy ending connection with people that we disagree with or we have conflict with. We end up kind of sharing space, but not sharing much else. This is a real story, and it's a story that all of us can connect to in some way, not seeing eye to eye on the rules of a neighborhood, right? Feeling fragmented in a place that we're supposed to feel at home and connected to. The person living closest to us somehow becomes the person that's farthest away from us, maybe emotionally or spiritually. And how did this happen? Maybe you can recall a roommate back in your roommate days, or some of us, you know, we are still in our roommate time uh, as younger folks. Maybe you can recall a roommate that you may have shared a bathroom with, but you would not have shared your secrets or any other important connection with that roommate because there was distance, there was drama. What happens when shared space becomes scared space? And how do we work towards sacred space where connections like this are transformed and God's love has the final say? Who gets to decide how space can be used in neighborhoods and who is welcomed? And is there ever a little room for some rowdy basketball? Does the HOA get to decide more than just obsolete regulations? What if you forget to mow your lawn? Because, oh wait, it's not really your lawn only, it's part of a neighborhood's reputation and aesthetic. You see, shared space is complicated, isn't it? We have what is ours, but we're connected to something outside of us too. We have a common ground with other humans, and that gets messy. Shared space may be complicated, but it's kind of God's thing. God is really good at shared space, so much so that God wanted to share our space, share space with us, become our neighbor, adopt us into this eternal neighborhood to which we weren't necessarily deserving of. God is good at shared space. And so we need to spend more time with God to learn about how to do shared space. I say this a lot, but you'll hear me say it so much. You can't do the gospel or love God in isolation. You just can't. It's not a solo practice or a DIY. And when you add theology and religion to this neighborhood mix, oh my, the stakes get even higher. And things are way more dramatic than just being reprimanded for tall grass in your yard that you need to mow. 
It gets even more complicated when bigger things are at stake, things like access to the kingdom of God, feeling a sense of belonging and kinship with others, sharing the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a shared resource. A huge part of understanding the unexpected neighbor is first examining our expectations. To be unexpected is to defy expectations. So let's talk about some first century expectations that were alive and well when Jesus was announcing the kingdom of God while we look at another specific passage that helps us understand what it means to be an unexpected neighbor. So this story, if, if the man of our last story was known as the Good Samaritan, this woman might be known as the Bad Samaritan. <laughs> Bless her heart. She's also known as the woman at the well. You might know that phrase. Uh, but this also might be your first time hearing this story. And so I want you, whether you've heard it or not, to hear it with new ears as if God could teach you something new today. I say the bad Samaritan only jokingly, truly, but this woman meets Jesus at a well and the focus of her story is more on these regrets of her life, these mistakes that she's made and she probably wasn't counting on talking about all that with the Messiah at the local watering hole. <laughs> but not unlike a basketball goal, the well was a communal place where people could come and fill their jugs with water. And this particular well was called Jacob's well. So here now, this passage from John, uh, Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to drink water and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Last week I used the phrase, the good Samaritan, because of how shocking it was that Jesus was interacting and talking about Samaritans. And now we have two identities that are against her, a woman of Samaria. Jesus, and then in parentheses it says, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. It's funny, even in parentheses. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give becomes an etern- a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may be never thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. He said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all these things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Then the disciples came, and they were astonished that she, he was speaking with a woman, but no one said anything. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. She was visiting the well at the hottest time of the day, at noon. And in this heat, we can imagine, a, we can imagine sweat on her brow and a general climate-related angst at the heat. But Jesus asks her for a drink on this sweltering day because he's tired after his journey. I'm going to say that again. Jesus asks her for a drink. Remember how I said that being an unexpected neighbor is extending the umbrella and also receiving the shade. In this brief introduction, Jesus sits in her shade. He receives her act of hospitality as a way to introduce himself to her. Sure, he could have gotten his own water, And some might explain this as Jesus just asserting his manpower to a woman and expecting her to serve him. But I don't understand it that way. I see our Savior subverting everything we thought we knew about a God who is untouchable and self-sufficient, becoming vulnerable in this moment, becoming our neighbor, becoming part of us and healing us by allowing a woman who was not valued by society to have the power to serve him with water. And of course, the meaning becomes so much deeper when we realize that it is him and God's love that will truly quench her thirst. 
But that mutual connection and interdependence never goes away. Even though Jesus ultimately provides the living water, part of his love is receiving the hospitality of those that society has deemed unworthy. That's such an important thing for you to get to know about Jesus. Living water. That anyone can serve. And here again, we have a Samaritan in the supporting role of the scene in Scripture. Who are the Samaritans, you might ask? Even if you don't ask, I'm going to tell you about it, so sorry. So this is a group of Israelites that kind of dissented from, from the main group of Israelites, right? So they... Um, the Israelites would eventually be the ones that settled into Jerusalem and really focused on Jerusalem as the center of the Jewish faith. Whereas, the, whereas these Samaritans stayed on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So they chose a different location to worship God. And that's why they forever in parentheses as not sharing much in common geography and theology and interpretation of the scripture led to their lifelong division. And Jesus changes all of that. This woman had two things going against her. She was a Samaritan and she was a woman. And that, means she had, that meant she had virtually no value to Jewish male leaders like Pharisees. If you look at a layout of the temple in Jerusalem, women actually had a separate part of the temple. So men could go all the way in to where like the priests could go and into the innermost part of the temple, but women had their own separate part, right? I'm just trying to get you to understand how subversive it is that Jesus meets her in this place. And the disciples are so shocked that he's talking to her, but they're smart enough not to say anything to their teacher. <laughs> this sermon, this story deserves three sermons, and it's a very rich story, but here are a few points to wrap, to wrap this up and, and lead us forward with a few important points from the story. Jesus teaches us again and again that God values the people that we think have no value. That's a major important point from this message. Jesus cultivates a neighborhood in which love reigns. More so than any other regulation, any rule that the HOA could come up with, love is what leads in Jesus' neighborhood. And the third thing to note is that Jesus sees her, knows her, knows her history, and knows her future, and loves her. It's not about judging her behavior. He doesn't judge her past, but he invites her to reclaim her belovedness. Nothing, 
not the third or the fourth or the fifth marriage could ever separate her from the love of Christ. As the daughter of parents who faced major divorce shame from the Southern Baptist Church, I think of me and my mom sitting in the back row of a Baptist church in Arkansas, the very back of the church, and my mom would give me Skittles to help me get through the message. <laughs> I was not that interested in the, in the message. But I think about how othered we felt in that church because of my parents' divorce. I wish I would have known this story. I wonder if we have let certain proof text verses in the Bible become more important than the stories that show the character of Jesus. My, my, my. The character of our Savior is so much more important to focus on. We focus on the verses that say divorce is adultery and is evil and all the things. And we forget the very story of water shared and love poured out to a woman going through divorce. How much richer, how much deeper, how much more loving would our faith be if we paid attention to the neighborly, loving character of God exemplified in his son, Jesus, instead of spending our lives coming up with good rules and good theology and good ways to keep people out. You see, God doesn't need us to prove that God's love exists. God doesn't need us to prove that God's love exists. Instead, God asks us to exist as proof of God's love. Do you see the difference? Christians can put their pen and paper and all the hard ways they work so hard to prove that God exists and they can get more committed to existing in God's love because that's the harder work. We can instead exist in ways that show how God's love has changed us. This is being the unexpected neighbor. You never know who Jesus will meet at the well or at the bar or at the art gallery or at the coffee shop or on a Sunday morning. You don't know where he will be or what he'll be up to, but you can bet on the fact that he will be there. And you never know what healing balm he will offer your soul. He may say, let's sit here a while, even in the hot sun. Let's drink water and catch up and be together. And remember how much I love you. He may want to dwell with you and know you more. And then you will go tell all your friends about it like this woman of Samaria did. This is my favorite part of the story. She goes and tells everybody about it. 
Sounds like preaching to me. Her testimony was so important that others began to believe in Jesus because of what she said. But listen, do you know why they started believing in him? I'm shocked because it wasn't a three-point presentation on the divinity of Jesus that changed their minds. Imagine that. It wasn't a dissertation on who Jesus is and how he is really the Messiah. What is it that led them to believe in Jesus? Well, here's what it was. With tears in her eyes, sweat on her brow from running, she said this, he saw me, like really saw me, and I'm different now. Do you want to know more about that? This is the love of Christ. May we spend time with this Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.